0: This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine Podcast. So, welcome back to the Water Into Wine Podcast. And this is number uh, eight, I believe this is. Do you know, I've been talking for about two and a half hours now in total. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we're going to start talking to you now about, last week we discovered that there are certain drugs uh, that expand your consciousness. And I want to explain about an area that was used for ritualistic purposes according to a book. I'll tell you where to go and look at the book and what it's called. And it was basically the the pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza that I'm talking about. But let's start very simply. There's a picture, it's actually a carving, taken from the Second Golden Shrine of Tutankhamun. Now, I didn't realise the significance of his name at the time when I first discovered this, but it hit me like a train sometime, sometime after. Tut-Ankh-Aman. That's how you spell, Tutankhamun. tut ankh A N K H A M U N. That's important. Just remember that. A-M-U-N. Tut-Ankh-Aman. Tutankhamen. Now, there's some carvings there of uh, a mummy standing up, and in front of the mummy there are two five-pointed stars and a... Um, a hawk and there's lines drawn from a star that's a little bit further away a five-pointed star three lines drawn to the forehead of the mummy now this carved figure is one in a row of identical figures it shows the conscious mind connecting the third eye to another star or planet now it turns out that most of the egyptian temples even the story of the mythical solomon's temple were built around the pineal gland, which is dead centre in the brain. I think we discussed this last week. As the story goes, Solomon's temple had at one end a room called the Holy of Holies, which was supposed to be God's place on earth. And the Ark of the Covenant was stored in there, and that's where it stayed. Now, only the holiest of people were allowed in to see the Ark, and even then, they were made to take precautions, as we've spoken about in previous podcasts. Now, if we look at the Egyptian temples... They all also had a holy of holies, and once again it was placed at one end, normally the furthest end from the entrance. Now in the early 1900s, R.A. Shwala de Lubitz, author of The Temple of Man, he, he talks about the connection between the sacred geometry of the human body and the measurements of the Egyptian temples, especially the Luxor temples. And if you draw a human body over the temple at Luxor, At exactly the same point where the pineal gland is situated in the centre of the brain, that's where the Holy of Holies is situated in the temple. Now it was in reading about ancient drug use that I found myself on a new intellectual road. Although Egyptologists claim even today that the Great Pyramid in Giza was intended as a burial chamber, no bodies have ever been found inside it. The same egyptologists commonly claimed that the bodies and treasures were stolen from it by tomb robbers before it was opened in the modern era in 820 a.d abdullah al Mamun had to smash his way in because there was no external entrance at the time but the pyramid was empty even then there was no evidence of tomb robbing even then there was no carvings on the walls there was no ornate drawings and no carving there's nothing there was nothing no paint on the walls as you would expect an egyptian temple as all the rest of them are you go underground in um most of the temple all of the temples and they've all got these figures on the walls it's all painted and nothing it's empty the walls are bare inside the great pyramid except for a few carvings that tourists have done which they shouldn't have done obviously now Al-Maman only found the formal entrance once he was inside by other means. He discovered the correct way to get in by following the tunnels and passages of the pyramid. But there was no way of exiting, other than by the use of force. In fact, since the entire pyramid had been originally coated in a smooth white Tura limestone, because that was the original coating, a Tura limestone, there had never been any perceived need to re-enter the pyramid, and therefore no apparent entrance. All the evidence actually points to the pyramid being used for ritualistic purposes of a much more disturbing nature than a mere burial. Now, the Colbrin is a collection of documents, I'll come back to the pyramid in just a second, that were rescued from a fire in Glastonbury Abbey in 1184. And they've uh, been protected by secretive groups ever since. Now, the documents are described as being a light on the path of truth. They are said to be 3600 years old and supposed to have been written by the Egyptians after the Jewish people were led out of Egypt into Jerusalem by Moses. In 1992 a leader of one of these supposed secret groups decided to copy the documents before the trust that held them was dissolved in 1995. The document starts by telling the story of creation and the history of the people who were on earth before Adam and Eve. It postulates that these people came from a much more advanced civilization than those that followed, but that they had perished in a series of natural calamities. This is not only an account of civilization that perished as a result of a possible climate change. According to Pluto, the Greek philosopher who lived in the early 4th century BC, Atlantis was a civilization based upon naval power. It was located, as Pluto documents, in front of the pillars of Heracles, which Heracles is our Hercules. Atlantis took control of Western Europe and North Africa in approximately 9,600 BC, but failed to take control of Athens. With the ocean levels rising, Atlantis was finally submerged in a single day and night of misfortune. Now the Colbrin also stated that the documents contained within it have a connection with Jesus himself, through Joseph of Arimathea, his uncle it contends that while Jesus was rejected as the Messiah, he was still loved by the Celts as their Lord. While this is quite clearly an ethnocentric self-glorification by the Celtic Church, often in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, this also has echoes in the research embodied in the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail and the Da Vinci Code, which suggests that Christ's bloodline was not welcomed in Christ's homeland. It also confers upon Jesus a prophet-like status, as a mortal, not as a godly one, which is, of course, what Jews and Islam have always contended. Now, in the pages of the Colbrin, it discusses the rituals that took place inside the Great Pyramid that outlines the drugs that were taken in the associated ceremonies. So, according to the Colbrin, the pharaohs were the twice-born ones, which is what I said to you in the last podcast. And as soon as they emerged from the womb of rebirth, which is the sarcophagus inside the king's chamber, they were named Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh actually means great house. The Colbrin also states that not all kings returned to their bodies after taking the drugs. As such, they remained kings, although this also meant that they were dead. Now, we're so used to seeing representations of the Great Pyramid that we really stop to ask ourselves how it was built. Most people say, who built the pyramids? Was it aliens? I've not found any evidence whatsoever that aliens built a pyramid. I've not come across anything like that in 12 years of researching this subject. So as far as I'm concerned, it was built by man. In fact, the Colbrin actually tells you who built it. They don't tell you how it was built, which is what you you should be asking, if you ask this question. And the question, big question is, why? Why was it built? even today it wouldn't be possible to build it. Yet it was built thousands of years ago by a race of people who today we see as being far less advanced than ourselves. Now this prejudice takes us even further away from an answer. I think that it's entirely possible that we've simply forgotten the knowledge that the ancient Egyptians once had. Typically, like Leonardo da Vinci, he painted from what he knew. He didn't paint a code. There's no Da Vinci Code, as I've said about a dozen times so far in this podcast. There's no Da Vinci Code. We don't know what he accepted as reality. That's why it looks strange. This kind of patronizing attitude is largely based upon the stigma the ancient Egyptian civilization has suffered at the hands of Christian authorities. This is not true, for example, of the ancient Greeks, whose technological and religious innovations are, if not always admired, at least faithfully recorded. Now the Egyptians, they drove themselves mad, they logged everything, they wrote everything down. There is so much, so much information coming out of ancient Egypt. I find it very difficult to believe that they didn't write down how the pyramids were built, what they were used for, why they were originally built. Who originally built them? I, they, I, I would put money on this being somewhere. It's just that I've not come across any evidence, any solid evidence that I would call solid evidence to say that this person built it, this is how it was built, and there's rumours and there's legends, but there's no solid evidence. Now, if you like, we're happy descendants of the Greek civilization. This is not the case for the Egyptian world, which even today has such a powerful taboo that many people find that they feel very uneasy trying to imagine themselves connecting to it, never mind part of it. In many people's minds, there's something almost alien or unnatural about ancient Egyptians. Now, I would contend that this unease is wholly attributable to the distance of the, Christian, the early Christian church fathers attempted to place between our own religious establishment and the Egyptians. Just as Lucifer or the morning star has been stigmatized, So there is a powerful taboo around Egyptian religious practices. I want to argue that this is an instance of bad faith, Christianity owes almost everything to ancient Egypt, even Christ. Furthermore, I want to contend that whereas Egyptian religious faith was about nature worship and was, thus, explicitly not related to materialism or capitalism in any way of its early forms. Early Christianity owes its establishment to a fairly low-down and dirty deal with the very modern world of ancient Rome. It is, after all, from Rome and its compromises between religion, commerce and political power that we derive the modern world. Ancient Egyptians, with its worship of immaterial things, was a gigantic threat to Constantine's Nicene Creed and the political world it was designed to serve. We fear ancient Egypt because we have not been allowed to understand it, because if we did, we would see what has been hidden from us for 2,000 years, and yet which is revealed to us everywhere in plain view. Mainstream Egyptologists have been very specific about the burial functions of the Great Pyramid. According to them, it was built as a burial tomb for the pharaoh Khufu, or Cheops as he's known in uh, Greek. However, this tomb isn't to be found inside it. Unlike other proven burial sites, the walls inside the Great Pyramid, as I've mentioned, have no markings on them. The date at which the pyramid was built, 2500 BC, is also much contested. The Great Pyramid covers an area of 13 acres. I'm I'm going to tell you this because nobody even realises or or looks at how amazing this building is. Let me tell you some facts. The Pyramid covers an area of 13 acres or two football pitches by two football pitches. There are 201 levels of stone, giving a total height of 449 feet to its flat top. It was originally 481 feet high, with the capstone in place. It was also originally white in colour, as we've discussed, because it was covered in an outer casing of Tura limestone. Now this casing was removed to make temples elsewhere, so it's alleged. It's also constructed of approximately 2.3 million blocks of stone, each weighing from 2.5 tonnes to, some say, 40 tonnes each, making a total weight of 6.5 million tonnes. In 2011 AD, the highest tower crane in existence is the Kroll K 10,000 Tower Crane. It's 100 meters, 330 feet tall, and can lift a maximum payload of 132 tons. Even if the Egyptians had had this modern-day crane, they still couldn't have lifted some of the stones to the top of the pyramid. Egyptologists tell us that the Egyptians used thousands of slaves to pull the stones up the side of the pyramid with a rope, placing the stone blocks in position with brute manpower, an explanation they base upon a painting from the tomb of Dijinahep. That pronunciation is going to be completely wrong, so I'll say it again. The tomb of De Geohep. <laughs> Sorry about the pronunciation. Now, in this painting, approximately 64 people are pulling a pharaoh statue along using ropes. Now, this seems plausible, if, very, if not very hard work for a great many people. It's a theory, though, subject to some large imponderables. Even if the building site were on the flat... When we consider the pyramid at Abu Rawash, we are presented with a new difficulty. This pyramid at Abu Rawash is at the top of a small mountain. Now how do you get such large blocks of stone up a mountain? Modern day engineers are still wondering how such a thing would be possible even with 21st century technology. So it seems we don't have every truth within our present compass. Mainstream Egyptology also tells us that the Great Pyramid of Giza was completed in 20 years. Khufu, for whom they allege it was built, was king and pharaoh for 23 years. Therefore, if the pyramid was in fact built for him, they must have started building it at his rebirth. Not an unreasonable assumption, you think? There are 2.3 million blocks of stone in the pyramid. If we divide 2.3 million blocks by 20 years then that means 115,000 blocks were laid into place each year. Then if we further divide 115,000 blocks by 365 days, that means that 315 blocks were laid in place each day. Then if we subdivide 315 blocks by 24 hours, that means that 13 blocks were laid in place each hour finally if we subdivide 13 blocks by 12 can you see what i'm doing here that means that a single block was laid in place every five minutes day and night for 20 years to get this built now that's a cock and ball story i'm sorry that's nonsense given that some of these stones came from 700 kilometers away this makes the logistical aspect of the pyramids construction all the more opaque It's very curious to me that no possible account for the pyramids' construction survives history. Now, we know how cathedrals were built, even if we rarely build them today. Why did we stop building pyramids? Why did we quickly pretend that we didn't know how they were built? They might well have been plonked in the sand by an alien civilization, which we have collectively disowned. But again, there's no proof of that either. We don't know. We don't know anything about it. Perhaps the Egyptian civilization was so advanced that they were too primitive to understand its engineering principles. But this seems somehow unlikely, to be honest with you, because over 2,000 years ago, for this to be built, this is 4,500 years ago, this pyramid, that does seem unlikely. More likely is the possibility that we were simply led to fear what the pyramids represented. No one in any position of authority wanted any more pyramids and so everything about them was officially ignored and forgotten. But the Great Pyramid of Hyde Park would have been damn impressive, don't you think? It would have inspired awe. It might even have started a religion. Let's also look at some of the facts surrounding the pyramid to see if they shed any light on these unanswered questions about it. The Great Pyramid is built at the mouth of the River Nile, exactly aligned so the cross angles point to the edges of the Mediterranean sea borders it was also placed there so that when the Nile flooded the front of the pyramid was flooded as well now the pyramid lines up exactly in in fact I think it's a fraction out it's a fraction out true north south east and west magnetic north is a few degrees off of true north so even if the Egyptians had had a compass how would they have worked this out so exactly No one so far has suggested that the Egyptians were sophisticated enough to have a compass, by the way, or know the difference between true and magnetic north. Coincidentally, the Earth's surface, when bisected into four equal points, also pinpoints the site of the Pyramid at Giza. It is the exact center of the Earth's landmass. The sites of the pyramid are concave. If you recall a third Templar cross found in the Temple of Isis, it also has concave sides, All the sides of the pyramid are exactly the same, but this can only be spotted from the air. Now, if you spot it at certain times of the day and night, it actually looks like it's got eight sides. But whether it has actually got eight sides, or whether it's concave or not, is is up to your interpretation, I suppose. So the question I ask myself is, why would the original builders go to all that trouble just to do that, unless it was important? The bottom of the pyramid is also concave, believe it or not. It doesn't sit on the earth as we would build it today. It hugs the earth. The earth's natural curvature, which is a brilliant construction idea. Only at the time, the world was thought to be flat, at least by the Christians who imposed their ideas of our universe upon ancient Egypt. Aristotle had advised Alexander the Great to go to the edge of the flat earth and conquer all that he found before that point, but had cautioned him against falling off. Alexander may have got as far as India, but he didn't discover the earth was round. His exploits were in the 4th century BC, some several thousand years after the pyramid's construction. The first person of our era to attempt seriously to travel around the globe was the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan. He set sail from between 1519 to 1522 with 237 men, with the intention to cross all of the meridians of the globe. He didn't complete the entire trip because he got involved in the Battle of Mactan in the Philippines, where he lost his life. Only 18 of his men returned. Even after this voyage, the Earth wasn't considered round, but more like an upside-down bowl with no bottom, i.e. curved, but not spherical. At least that's what the modern post-Egyptian world believed, until Galileo had another go at offering fresh empirical evidence. It's quite possible that the location of the Giza Pyramid is accidentally at the centre of the Earth's landmass. However, the curvature of its base is a little bit harder to explain. Another coincidence, the height of the pyramid minus the missing capstone, is, once multiplied by a large number, the height of the North Pole from the equator. This makes the Great Pyramid a 1 to 43,200th scale. That's the large number by the way, 43,200 it makes it the scale model of the northern hemisphere of the earth. According to the Egyptologists, this is all a coincidence. However, as we've established, numerology wasn't just a hobby in pre-Christian civilization, it was the foundation of its metaphysics. Other investigations reveal less contentious facts. Inside the pyramid, there are three chambers, the subterranean chamber, the queen's chamber, and the king's chamber. Now, at the top of the king's chamber, you'll see an upside down v-shape that's the top that they call the relieving chambers at the top of the pyramid v if you go to some churches in the uk you'll see an image of jesus on the cross with a roof over his head or there's there's this upside down v over his head go and have a look keep your eyes open when you walk around a church On the one hand, it keeps the rain off of Jesus, but it's also strongly representative of a godly sacrifice in a pyramid-shaped construction. This kind of coincidence is what the Freemasons term a truth hidden in plain view. Now let's take a look at the Queen's Chamber inside the Great Pyramid. There are two shafts exiting the Queen's Chamber and the King's Chamber. One of the shafts in the Queen's Chamber used to point to the star Sirius, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky at night. Sirius is nearly twice as bright as Canopus, which is the second brightest star. The three kings of the biblical legend followed a bright star when Jesus was born. When we look at Sirius, we see only one star, but it's actually two. The largest one, Sirius A, is approximately twice the size of the sun, but 25 times brighter. It also includes in its corona the smaller dwarf star, Sirius B, which is, however, invisible to the naked eye. Sirius was associated with the flooding of the Nile. The Egyptians would see the star at a given position and know that flooding was imminent. When this happened, it was followed not long afterwards by the growth of vegetation, as you would expect, Um, and as such it was a time of great rejoicing in Egypt. The placement of the star heralded hope and rebirth of the, of the Earth. The Egyptians were not the only primitive people to take an early interest in the stars, and Sirius in particular. Practically every early culture based its allegorical expectations on a sophisticated set of astronomical observations. There are arguments suggesting that Stonehenge in the UK was an advanced clock for reading the heavens in the same way. Now, the Dogon people are a tribe of 400,000 to 800,000 strong who inhabit the central plateau region of Mali. In Robert K.G. Temple's book, The Sirius Mystery, he tells us that the Dogon people knew about Sirius B, the smaller star that is invisible to the naked eye, and that they even knew that it takes 50 years to complete its orbit around Sirius A. Yet mainstream science has only known about the existence of Sirius B since 1862 and as for knowing that the orbit took 50 years, that discovery didn't come to quite a bit later. The Dogon tribe have four calendars, Sun, Moon, Sirius and Venus. They also say that not only is there another star orbiting Sirius A, and they call that star Yemayá, a a fact which we are still yet to confirm but they also knew about Saturn's rings and Jupiter's four moons, and they've known a long time that the planets orbit the sun. They claim to have been given this information by nomos, or the teachers as they call them, which they describe as fish-like beings that came from Sirius to help mankind. Now these are clearly myths, but they still beg the question as to how we account for the dogon people being more astronomically sophisticated than us despite not having large digital telescopes and their own spaceships. Sirius is clearly an important astral body, and not just in Egypt. And that's where we're going to draw an end to this podcast. Next week, we're going to be talking about the King's Chamber and the Subterranean Chamber inside the Great Pyramid. We're going to talk about them in some detail. Now, I did tell you uh, that I would uh, inform you the website that the Colbrin is on. It's thecolbrin.com. The Colbrin, all one word, .com, Also, Colbrin.com. Colbrin.com. And also, coldiantrust.org, coldiantrust.org. Um, if you just, If you can't remember any of that, just type in the Colbrin Bible on Google and it will show you all these websites. You can read this Bible for yourself. They even allow you to buy copies of it and they send it to you. So, as I say, next week we're going to be talking about the King's Chamber which is where the ritual ended. And that's all I'm going to tell you on that. Have a fantastic week. I'll speak to you soon.